Welcome, Dig This listeners, as we dig deeply into the archives, back to our 10th episode, exploring the phenomenon of Northern Soul. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, welcome to another edition of Dig This with the Splendid Bohemians. I'm Rich Buckland, and my partner is always the inimitable Bill the Mez Mesnick. How you doing, babe? I got a heart full of soul today, okay? uh, Rich. I got a heart full of soul. I'm I'm just I'm pumped. Well, that must mean that we must be gravitating toward the universe of Northern Soul. Yes, this is this is great for our tenth episode of Dig This. Wonderful, wonderful, and I think that this will. Um, encompass a great many artists and a, uh, a cultural era that maybe a, a lot of our listeners are not familiar with. It was a, uh, it was a very groovy time to be uh, participating in uh, the music scene. And, uh, oh, man. Northern Soul was, uh, was a movement. Well, let's start by well, saying... Well, let me start by... Yeah, before you jump in, I want to ask you, so... You you came to me and you said, let's, for our 10th episode and our next topic, tackle Northern Soul. And uh, I have to admit that it was on a, quite on the obscure side to me when you first, when you first proposed it. I had to do some deep tissue research, which I'm so glad that you uh, instigated because it's great. It's a great topic, and, and I'm very excited, and I think I'm ready to discuss it. So, take it away. All right, my friend. Firstly, let's talk about this motion picture. Uh, okay. That was released. I guess it's a couple of years old now. Uh, it's called yeah. Northern Soul. Directed by Elaine Constantine, and yes. it is the only motion picture that truly attempts, with real accuracy, to capture what was going on in. England at that particular time. Uh, yeah, did you dig it? I thought it was one of... Uh, this is one of those subjects that is so close to you, you want to like it regardless of what the outcome is. But I, I, thought, it was a, I thought it was a great, a, a great achievement because there's so much... Yeah, I mean, sometimes, sometimes we, we, we come to these things, we have a lot of anticipation like the ill-fated vinyl that we were just talking about. 
um, and it doesn't doesn't you know match up to what you feel it should be. Northern Soul for me, total different direction, wasn't as familiar with the artists and the culture of it, but the integrity of the film struck me. And as someone mentioned when reviewing it, that the accents were so thick, sometimes, you know, you, you could have used subtitles. Um, it was, it really almost felt, it was a good mix of narrative drama with almost a documentary feel. And I think she was a documentary uh, filmmaker, a photographer, yes. Elaine Constance. Yes. Yeah. And that feel is captured, and it's cap it's captured with authenticity and obvious passion for uh, for its topic. And the term Northern Soul was invented by a gentleman who I don't think gets a great deal of, of, of attention. His name is Dave Godin. And Dave had a record shop uh, 1967 called Soul City. I uh, believe it was in Covent, Co in Covent Gardens. And yes. this cat decided he, he always loved black music but he really wanted to specialize it to specialize in it and there were northern football fans in london who were there to follow their teams uh, and uh, quoting dave he says but they weren't interested in the latest uh, developments in the black american charts uh meaning the music charts i devised the name as shorthand a shorthand sales term it was just to say if you've got any customers from the North don't waste time playing them records currently in the U.S. black chart. Just play them what they like, Northern Soul. So there right, was, so they didn't, they did not dig the funk music that was evolving in the time uh, in America. There was an appreciation for it, but what these, what, what these people were, were really trying to configure were the, the the sensations that they felt listening to the least popular, the records that didn't chart. In many cases, only a handful of copies would exist of some particular recordings. So, right, right, right. Well, these were those kind of small secondary labels, right? Like it, Rick Kick, Golden World, Golden World, mm -hmm. yeah. And there, the entire, the entire idea was to pursue these recordings. Uh, and an entire culture began to be, was, was building upon that premise. Pretty, pretty fascinating yeah, the stuff. Scene, yeah, the scene in the movie where the guys are really like jazzed about, they're going to go to New York, I mean, to go to America and they're going to, you know, find records that no one else has. And that was the, the how you made your name as a DJ, by having a record. This was be, before, you know, these the file-sharing days where you had to have that piece of vinyl. You had that piece of vinyl, and it was that obscure 
you could become a star because everybody would want to come and dance to your record. Exactly, exactly. Now, this culture is pretty much comprised of working-class kids, uh, which is interesting because it runs concurrent with the experiences that you and I had in the U.S., uh, except the, the kids who were propelling the flower power generation were not necessarily working class kids. Exactly. Whole different scene, whole different element going on. It's. And that's probably why I missed all of this, because I was one of those. also had to be paying attention to black music in particular to gain an understanding. Um, my, my job as a kid was always finding those radio stations late at night that you could try to get between, you know, when you try to move the dial uh, just enough where you're going to be able to get something from another state, another city, if you're lucky, you'll get something from another country, um, like Radio Luxembourg, which is, mm. Van Morrison, you know, speaks eloquently on the topic of Radio Luxembourg. Yeah. Um, and I always found myself attracted to the stations that played the, 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 the grittier, the funkier. The, the more compelling uh, style of, 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 of music. And in New York, we had a station, WWRL, with a DJ, DJ named Frankie Crocker. Frankie Crocker, yep. Frankie, Frankie would play all the records you're never going to hear from the WMCA Good Guys or Cousin Brucey on WABC. And that's where I began understanding there's a whole other culture that exists with recordings that are not going to make the, uh, the American charts and that are quite popular overseas. Yeah, well, I, personally, I've moved on to, uh, you know, those guys like Scott Muni and the long-form uh, album cuts and uh, the black music that, that I was listening to uh, was... Uh, Fly Stone and his evolutions. Yes, of um, yeah. But uh, but you know, early on in my early uh, preteen and early teen years, it was all about Motown. I, I loved all those guys. Um, but I had moved on to the more kind of the hippie extended explorations. And also the the music that was influenced by psychedelics and influenced by a whole other world of electronics. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That was there was there was a whole other thing going on there as well. Um, so this is a time capsule, basically, 
And when you, you, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's very, and when you look at the demographic and the sociology of it, those northern kids in, in England where everything was so economically depressed and, uh, you know, they were very macho, you know, in terms of, like, we don't want anything to do with what's happening down south in London. And they kind of walled off into their own world. They had their own fashion, and and they and they just microscopically like zoned in on this time of of the heavy, heavy beat dance beat uh, of the Motown influence, and some big stars were made in that area. And I think you have a couple that you want to talk about. Well, what's interesting is is you you're going to have you're going to have artists in the U.S. like Wilson Pickett who can do no wrong. But when it came to Northern Soul, a cat like Pickett was not necessarily on the top of the, of, of the Northern Soul lists. Neither, no. neither were the big Motown records of of the day. They loved the recordings that were influenced by those records. But no, they loved Edwin Starr. But they loved Ed, Edwin Starr. And so a few of the artists that did chart here um, did find a home in the Northern Soul movement. So you've got cats like yeah, Ed, Edwin Starr, Larry Williams who had not had success since the late 50s, early 60s, tunes like uh, Boney Moroni and uh, a tune that the Beatles... Dizzy Miss Lizzy. Dizzy yeah. Miss Liddy that, uh, that the Beatles had covered. Um, yep. he, he hooked up with a great uh, artist, Johnny Guitar Watson, and uh, they had a couple of numbers that were, that were quite successful. Uh, yeah, Too Late? Yep. Yeah. And Frank, you know Frankie Valley. Frankie Valley has all these hits with the Four Seasons, but they don't want to hear the hits with the Four Seasons. These kids wanted the lesser-known Frankie Valley material, for which he couldn't get arrested here in the states. That's right. I had never even heard of the Night, uh, <laughs> and I knew I had all of the Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons records. Right, and you, you didn't even know this one even existed. I had no idea this existed. And when you hear that pounding drum beat, you understand why. It was all about the dancing. Oh, absolutely.
interesting. With, and there's some great footage in that movie with the dancing. And, you know, they, they talk about the influences. And I, I, I found this really fascinating. Bruce Lee and the martial arts influenced a lot of those crazy kicks and backfalls and everything. He's very acrobatic. Oh yeah, he would that yeah, that was everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, the ac the acrobatics of, 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 of it all were were prominent in the dance moves. But what also fueled this particular movement, just as our movement was fueled with uh, with weed and with psychedelics this was a movement fueled by amphetamine yeah <laughs> yeah and you can kind of and they capture pretty well in the film the the faces the this perspiration desperation uh, that can only come from being stoked on <laughs> speed uh, yeah, and in this documentary I saw, was talking about these were government. They started off getting these government amphetamines that were time released, and so the the, the way that you ingested the stuff in order to dance all night was uh, it was a whole culture in itself. Well, there might be a similarity to uh, the movement here of of raves where kids would be timing ecstasy. Hmm. Although... Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. it seems like a similar... It seems like a similar uh, cultural pattern. Although, yeah, it's that dance, that dance culture. Exactly. With the, with, but now you've got this, this... This music that's playing at booming levels because the technology did not exist in 1967 through 74 to be able to to really pump this stuff up so now kids today are capable of listening to things at ear splitting ear splitting decibels uh, <laughs> and back then i guess the loudest that we ever heard the loudest band i had ever heard was blue cheer summertime blues oh sure sure but as far as listening to records in a club it was only so far you could pump up the volume. You couldn't really pump it up to that nerve-breaking rave of the uh, of, of the two thousands that uh, that I had heard. So this movement was drug-inspired. It was soul-inspired. It was black-inspired, working-class-inspired. What is there in American culture? that really is comparable to to this working class movement well it's interesting i mean i think uh the punk uh the punk uh, movement down in the east village was was comparable um starting in that cbgb's and that small one or two clubs and all the kids coming from new jersey and queens and wherever and just things just exploding out of that but it's i find it interesting that the disco thing was going on at the same time as northern soul was going on and it was polar opposites in many ways once again 
all dance culture with its own fashion and its own records. But um, there's something more attractive I, uh, for me about the Northern Soul people. Oh, absolutely. There was something about the entire Studio 54 culture that I found vomitous. Yeah, um, no, I, I, you wouldn't catch me anywhere near it. No, there was something. There was something about the infusion of some form of wealth that I always saw in there. Although a lot of these kids in, who were pursuing disco were not wealthy, but man, oh man, the clubs in New York that were attempting to cash in on this—you you really couldn't get out there into the top places without having without having a lot of bread. Yeah. Northern no, no, that, Yeah. Now these were these were card carrying member places like the Wigan Casino. The Wigan which Casino. turns out to be the all time biggest membership club in history. Yeah, what's fascinating about about the Wigan Casino is that it's it I'm I'm just surprised that it didn't take on a bigger life of its own into something that still stands to this day. Right. Because the success of it was so seemingly secure. But uh, can you tell us a little more about the Wigan Casino? Yeah, the Wigan, well, the history is interesting in, in, the, in the evolution of the clubs. I think the first club that they talk about was the twisted wheel and the you know England is relatively small isn't it I mean uh, you, so you have these sort of pockets where people uh, like um, says here the Chateau Indy and Detroit which catacombs in Wolverhampton a Highland Rooms is uh Blackpool, Mecca, the Golden Torch, and Stoke on uh, Trent, and, and of course the Wigan Casino. And that was the biggest one. And the interesting thing was that these were, they went on all night. So they were membership clubs. And you, you'd get a card, and it didn't get closed down. So initially, the Twisted Wheel was hosting live music. And, and the disco nights only once a week. And then in 63, the Abity Brothers and DJ Roger Eagle um, started uh, working in there and they were attracting crowds and, and records then became the thing. And that takes us back to the, the idea of the scene in the movie where they were talking about going to America to find those records. And it became a real collector's market. And I'm trying to remember that there's one DJ, he was talking about, he went to Florida with his parents on a vacation. And he found like a, a secondhand shop or some Salvation Army. And there were buckets, I mean, just boxes and boxes and boxes of all these soul records. 
and he brought them all home. They were so many that they, the plane had a hard time getting off the ground. And they were going <laughs> to yeah. throw the, the boxes off the plane. And he was like saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, you can't do that. We found a way. And he got them back to England and he became the top DJ in England. And I don't have his name in front of me right now. How, what do you feel is the, uh, the last, uh, subject to observe here before we uh, say our goodbyes. Well, I think ultimately we have to pay, pay respects to to the recordings that came out of this movement that ga- that gained attention, and some of the artists who couldn't get arrested here, who were having success. Um, so you know, if you've got. You've got a, you've got someone like Shirley Ellis, who had really ah. one major record here, the name game. Oh, I love Shirley Ellis. But she was very hot, very, very hot on the uh, on the Northern Soul Circuit. A West Indian beauty. Yes, yes. And you, you don't think of uh, Shirley Ellis as producing uh, <laughs> heart pounding music. When you think of, uh, when, I don't know. You got to listen. Get right down to the real nitty gritty. Yeah, get right down to the real. Yeah, exactly. Um, then you've got a cat like Tony Gala. I don't know where I'm going. Gala, the uh, one of the few uh, Caucasian members of the uh, tribe. Precisely, and what Tony has had going for him was this great, great voice, which later he utilized as a big band singer, and is still working as a big band singer to this day. Yeah, I love that record. You know, I've been listening to it. Uh, I was unaware of it before you sent me his name, and. Uh, if you listen to that record, it's really interesting. It keeps modulating upwards through the chorus and then through the bridge, and it keeps going up and up and up, and it's very dramatic song. And you can see people dancing to it. I mean, it's very powerful. And how about a cat like Eddie Holman? We know him for Hey, hey Holman, I Surrender. I Surrender. We know him primarily for Hey There, Lonely Girl. Yes, that great falsetto. Right? Great, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful voice. Um, yeah. And then you've got the artists who, who primarily thrived on uh, OK Records, OKEH, the home of Major Lance, uh, Curtis Mayfield doing magnificent sure. production work. And you got artists like Billy Butler, who were... Billy Butler, the right track. The right track. Uh, and then you've got Las Vegas staples, to, to become Las Vegas staples, like Melba Moore. 
Yeah, that surprised me. That that was a bit of a that was interesting. Yeah, that was interesting. But she's on a couple of the lists that uh, that talk about the recordings of uh, of, of prominence. Uh, yeah, I always think of her for her glamour. Yes. Yeah, more more than anything else. She, more like uh, Lola Falana. Right. Exactly. Uh, beautiful girl. Uh, the one that surprised me was Joe Tech. Because Joe Tex, I mean, you and I have enjoyed Joe Tex through the decades for all of those great um, songs where he talks to you, you know. <laughs> you better hold on to what you've got. <laughs> yeah, I mean, great, great recordings. And I I did not uh, realize that he was a Northern Soul star. It ends up with heartbreak and tears I've tried romance time and time again Everything starts out right But I cry in the end and I'm fresh out of tears Yes I am You can't make me cry no more I'm fresh out of tears Well, he was big. Yes, he was big here. Very big. And you know, Joe, Joe Tex had a had a had a great career. Uh, my favorite Joe Tex story is this is toward the right just a couple of years before he passed away of a heart attack. Um, the year is 80, 1980, and he died in eighty two. Died in eighty two of a heart attack, I believe. And Joe was part of a soul revival that featured Solomon Burke, Wilson Pickett, Don Covey. Uh, and it, it was probably one of the most exciting package shows I, I had ever witnessed. But it's the only time I got to see Joe Tex live. And he was a, he was a really enigmatic uh, performer. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, it says here that he was also known as Yusuf Aziz. Yes. <laughs> when, when did that happen? That was, that was later on. Uh, Joe, you know, it's funny. We, we, we reflect upon some of these uh, stars of our past and our, our, these artists who influenced us. And... Uh, we investigate a little bit later, and then we find out certain things we had no idea about, and that was a little piece of information uh, that you just picked up recently as well. I didn't didn't recognize that till later. Yeah, and then as you mentioned before, talk about an enigma, Larry Williams, who, uh, according to some speculation, killed himself. Yeah, the the Larry Williams saga is is one of those unsolved mysteries because Larry was was found dead of a bullet wound to the head, but because of his deep roots in in drugs, there have also been there's been talk forever about uh, him having been murdered. So yeah, that's kind of that's one of those uh, one of those unsolved mysteries, but. Um, 
Well, in, in this issue of Mojo Magazine from uh, uh, July of 2000, they recount the story, and they also talk about that scene in Boogie Nights with, um, once again, Alfred Molina, who whose character seems to be, as it says here, a thinly disguised homage to Larry Williams in the final stages of Cocaine Dementia. In that scene where he pulls out the gun and he's in his underwear and he starts, you know, that's one of, my, one of my favorite scenes in any motion picture. What Paul Thomas Anderson did in that particular scene, it's it's such an ang- it's such an anxious. The choice of music, Jesse's girl, yeah. Jesse's girl, Rick Springfield, right. and with Molina right. shooting with his houseboy shooting off these fireworks. <laughs> And he's and he's yeah yeah and there was some talk that there this was a uh, veiled reference to to Larry Williams but that was that's one of the most exciting scenes I can remember in any in any film uh, and that, some of Paul Thomas Anderson's best work best work ever yeah so these are some of the great Northern Soul stars and for those who are interested there is. Uh, on the Great Kent label, out of the UK, Dave Godin's Deep Soul Treasures, taken from the vaults. There's four, four volumes of this stuff. Um, and you'd get to hear a lot of the artists that, uh, uh, that some of whom you'd be familiar with, but these recordings you're definitely not going to be familiar with. Um, uh, recordings from... Check it out. This is a... This is a slice of time. Yeah, it's uh, potent. And if you're if you're curious, there's the Northern Soul soundtrack, uh, a nice two CD package with a DVD extra, which will feature Elaine Constantine talking about the film. So, uh, yeah, yeah, great, great time uh, for for some incredible music and. Uh, we're glad that we were able to share it with you today. Mez, that was fun. I thank you so very much, as as always. Let's do it again soon. Bill, we're going to do it again soon. There's been talk that uh, we might be investigating the life and times of Mr. Wayne Cochran. All right. That's a good deal. Bill, I thank you so much. And from Rich Buckland and Bill Mesnick, your splendid bohemians, we bid you farewell for now. Thank you, gang. Bye-bye. Adios.